0: all right kids you can be dismissed to your time of worship upstairs um it was crazy and fun to the way we did the offering for the grace and joy house the boys did win but in the boys winning we doubled our goal which meant that uh, everybody got a pie and uh, poor Ramona got thrown in um, to it at the last minute but was gracious in that Um, Thank you for being here. Um, A few other things uh, going on. Um, uh, She told you about the Back to School Splash August 1st. That's important. We will then have our congregational meeting two weeks after that on August the 15th. Set your calendar for that. That will be ice cream. And some ministry reports, in the gym, back to sort of our normal way of doing that. But then on August, um, the last weekend of August, I think it's the 28th and 29th or something like that, the last Saturday and Sunday in August will be our annual missions conference. Typically do that in February every year. We moved it to August this year just because of all of the uncertainty. Um, We're titling it Beyond Our Congregation, and you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks, but and I know it feels like, well, that's over a month away, and uh, school will start back between then, but go ahead and set your calendar. Um, there will be a lot of stuff going on during the day on Saturday that you're going to want to be a part of, both for kids ministry and for some uh, sessions for uh, adults and, and youth, and so uh, mark your calendar for that and plan to join us for that. Um, Uh, We were so amazed by the way the money came in for the Grace and Joy House, and we're we're so grateful for that. Um, But I did share with you last week, we do have another offering opportunity, another um, ministry project that we can be a part of as a local church. Um, One of our mission partners are a pastor in Romania, Emmy, Cura, I don't know exactly, Cura, Shirah, something like that. Tom knows how to say it. Um, but uh, Emmy and Nadia have been partners of ours for a long time with um, their church, Deneza, in Cluj, Romania. And their son has the opportunity to come to the United States for his junior year of high school. He's 16 years old. Um, and uh, study at Christian Heritage School here in Dalton. Um, but that incurs some costs, and he has had some discounts in those costs and um, had some people come alongside him to help, and the school's been very generous. But we as a church want to help also, to get him over here, help with some of the travel and the food costs in him coming to live in Dalton, to be a part of our youth ministry, to be a part of our worship ministry on Sunday mornings and a part of the youth worship leadership team. Um, Emmanuel's goal in coming here is to uh, improve in English and also develop as a worship leader. And uh, talking to Jason and AJ, we've said, hey, we want to we come alongside you and help you with that. So our goal is to uh, raise $10,000 to help the family make this happen and help get Emmanuel here. He'll be living with two church families, both our family and Tom and Sally Perry and uh, so you'll see him around quite a bit. I'm sure he's going to become a part of the life of the church over the 10 months that he's here, Uh, but we want to help the family by um, providing um, that $10,000 to help make this possible. So, if you want to give towards that need, um, you can write a check and put international student um, in the the memo line. You can give online towards that. You can bring a check by the office, uh, that sort of thing. And I'll tell you, um, there's several families that already know about this. So we've had a family already come forward and say, hey, we want to match whatever the rest of the congregation gives up till that $10,000 goal. And so really, if the rest of the congregation will just give the $5,000, we are going to meet that $10,000 goal. Um, Emmanuel arrives August 11th, and so it's coming soon, but we just want to give you the opportunity to be a part of really Um, helping out one of our ministry partners in Romania, um, and bring a a young man over here that's an incredible young man that many of us have met when we were in Romania. We just want to give you that opportunity. There will be no pies in the face involved in that offering, um, but please, please, please give anyway. And I'm just going to tell you, um, I am so grateful for the generosity that this church has shown. We we do we split one position into two. Um, earlier this year, and we 're so excited to have Rika and AJ here with us. We did an offering for a famine in West Africa and have had some incredible support from you guys as the church. We obliterated that goal. We set a goal of ten thousand dollars for that. We raised twenty. We set a goal of, four, of two thousand dollars for Grace and Joy House. We raised four and so I just want to say anytime we bring new needs to you, I, I really do want to say thank you and all glory to God for his generosity with us over the last year. Um, None of us knew what what church finances, what any finances would look like in the midst of COVID a year ago. And you as a church have been so faithful. And for that reason, we have stepped out in faith and expanded our ministry and expanded what we're doing. So it's just a reminder to say thank you for all of the generosity you've shown, please continue to walk in generosity and, and discipline giving towards, uh, towards the general fund. It is a little bit down in the summer as it typically is, so we want to remind you, continue to give to the general fund, but as these fun things come up, new opportunities to be a part of uh, different, fund, or different projects going on, uh, we'd love for you to prayerfully consider how you give above and beyond your normal giving towards those. Um, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 14. I told you last week that I really wanted to take some time in July to share with you a little bit about just what God did in my family and in me um, in the time away during the sabbatical. We're so grateful for that opportunity as a family and that opportunity to to step um, out of the ministry of the church. Um, But we're so happy to be back. And so for these three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, we're going to be in John 14. So I'd encourage you to spend some time in John 14. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about some of our adventures on the sabbatical. Show that first, pi- first picture, Steve. This is sunrise at the Grand Canyon because we're crazy, and it was awesome. So here's what my family did. Um, this is, of course, Jess and myself, and then uh, Eden, Jericho, and Karis are eight, seven, and five. And with eight, seven, and five, we made the decision to get up at 3.45 in the morning and drive an hour to get to the rim, the south rim of the Grand Canyon, in time, get parked, get to the rim to be there for sunrise just after five o'clock. And that was what we were rewarded with. And y'all, just like any picture, it just doesn't do it justice. Also, we're not professional photographers, right? We have cell phones. Um, but this was the beginning of what was just an incredible day at the Grand Canyon Force, and, and maybe maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you want to go to the Grand Canyon. Maybe there's some of you, and I've heard this from people, that some people get to the Grand Canyon and are like, yeah, well, this is like a really big ditch. It's the biggest ditch I've ever seen, but, but what's the big deal? And, and let me just tell you, show the next picture. The Grand Canyon is Amazing. The depth and the size. Next picture, too. I mean, to to see just the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon was something we were all looking forward to. And let me tell you, the one that I think was looking forward to it the most was actually Jericho. Because Jericho, our seven-year-old, loves hiking. And he was talking about it the entire trip because we told him, you know, if you endure this 24-hour car ride to get out to Arizona, we're going to do some cool things once we get there. And, we, and we, our condo was in southern Arizona where we were staying. And so we said, we're going to do some hiking there. We're going to go to Grand Canyon. We're going to do some hiking. It's going to be great. Well, here's the problem. Jericho, when we hiked at the Grand Canyon, he actually complained about our hikes the whole time. Now, lest you think I'm gonna talk bad about my son, I'm not. This is, there's a clear explanation for this because this is what we did. See, the Grand Canyon is big, it's huge. You can hike down in, you can hike all around, but we, it's not just Jericho we have to think about. We also have Karis. Karis is five, Karis is not into hiking. So, y'all, here's what we did. At the Grand Canyon, we were there again. Uh, left 3.45 in the morning, arrived 4.45 in the morning, uh, went over to the rim, were able to see it, and then we hiked from there. Karis, at five years old, hiked over five miles at the Grand Canyon that day. That was incredibly impressive for a five-year-old. And for about a mile, she was on my shoulders. But to make it five miles, that, that's incredible. That's great. But see, here's what we, the way we did hiking at, a, at the Grand Canyon. We hiked the rim trail if you've ever been on the Rim Trail, it's not what Jericho thought of hiking. See, because Jericho looked over the edge, and he saw big rocks, and he saw a deep canyon, and he saw steep cliffs, and we let him get nowhere near any of that. Because the Rim Trail is safe. The Rim Trail is paved. The Rim Trail is great for a five-year-old little girl to walk along. There's a little bit of an incline and there's a little bit of a decline. It kind of moves with the edge of the canyon, but it never gets too close to the edge. And there's guardrails where it comes right up against the edge most of the time. And so we took a very cautious approach because Jericho loves hiking, loves loves running around in the rocks and playing in the rocks and climbing on rocks, but also didn't know the fullness of what the Grand Canyon entailed. And so we spent a whole day hiking along the Grand Canyon, riding the buses, getting off, hiking some more, riding the buses some more, driving around, seeing cool, incredible things. And at the end of a day of hiking at the Grand Canyon, he was like, that was walking. That was not hiking. Hiking involves rocks that you climb and hills that you get to run up, not walking along a paved path. And you know, it's all about what your expectations are, because the the truth is he was tired at the end of the day, but he was tired of walking. He didn't get the exertion he was hoping for in climbing and playing on the rocks, because we didn't let him go deep down in. Now, we could have taken the Bright Angel Trail. Maybe some of you know what that is. That's the crazy hike that goes all the way down in and zigzags back and forth, and you go down in, and then you come back up, and we probably could have tried some of that with him, but it wasn't the right thing to do with our family. So we, we protected him from that. We kept him from that. So I share that as, a, as an introduction to another section in John 14 that I want you to sh- see. Because so many times in scripture, as Jesus is interacting with his disciples, there's what seems like miscommunications, kind of like me with Jericho. Jericho, you want to hike? You're going to love the Grand Canyon. We're going to see cool things. Because for me, hiking is about the cool things you see. You don't have to do a hard hike to see cool things at the Grand Canyon. It's just right there. But for Jericho, hiking is actually touching and feeling the rocks under his hands and under his feet. And and the paved path was not what he was into. Well, John 14, we have a series of misunderstandings in the upper room. I told you last week about the first misunderstanding between Jesus and Thomas. And I told you Thomas gets a bad rap, but Thomas is just the guy that's willing to ask the hard question. There was a misunderstanding between Jesus and Peter at the end of chapter 13, where he's like, surely you're not talking about me denying you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh no, just wait. Give it about eight hours, Peter, maybe less than that. And now we have Philip that, that jumps in with a, with a statement of his own that leads to another clarifying conversation with the Son of God. And, and what I want us to see here is that Philip asks some good, in, in a sense, Philip is hitting on the right things, but Philip is ultimately lacking faith in his response to Jesus. And because of his lack of faith, he's looking for the wrong thing. And see, Jericho in the Grand Canyon was, had expectations of something that were not met and ended in disappointment. And what we're going to unpack from John chapter 14 today is how our wrong expectations about who God is, what God is supposed to do, how God is supposed to work on our behalf, how we're supposed to experience God, how sometimes our wrong assumptions and our wrong expectations lead us to completely missing out on the grandeur all around us. So John chapter 14, we'll start in verse 5. Jesus has just said that you know the way to where I am going. And he's talking about preparing many rooms for the disciples. And this is Thomas's confusion. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he goes on to say, If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Okay, so that was what we talked about last week. Now into Philip's response here. Now now keep in mind, the last sentence that Jesus says in verse seven, from now on you do know him and have seen him. So how does Philip respond to that? Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip, Philip definitely missed the point. Like if you just take Jesus for what he said, Jesus just said, you have seen the Father. And Philip's response to, you have seen the Father, is, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I didn't want to pick on Thomas last week. We're not going to pick on Philip this week. But Philip is certainly missing the point here. But look at how Jesus answers him. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? He could have said, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know the Father, Philip? Have I been with you so long and you still do not understand what the Father is doing? You still do not understand what what we are doing? He said, no, no, no. Have I been with you so long you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So then how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? He looks at Philip and he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so here's where we're going today. We're gonna see that God moves in mysterious ways. We hear things like that. We're going to see that God is up to things that we don't even see, grasp, and understand all the time. And it's really easy to miss out on what God is doing right in front of us because we're looking for him to do something else. We're praying, we're asking for him to do something in a specific way, and all the time we're waiting for him to do things according to our definition, and he's doing things that we're completely missing because his works don't always fit in our definitions And so we're we're going to unpack this by looking at Philip's response to what Jesus said to Thomas, and then we'll look at Jesus' response to Philip, and then we'll look at how we respond. Philip's response, first and foremost, giving credit to Philip. Philip's response is good in a lot of ways, because Philip's response shows a longing, a longing to know God. A longing to know, to know God in all of his holiness, in all of the grandeur that he has heard about. See, see, Philip knew the old covenant scriptures, the, the Hebrew scriptures. Philip knew how God presented himself from those scriptures. So you got to think the context. When, when, when a young Jewish man is saying, show us the Father, what do you think he means? I, I think in his brain, he's got Isaiah 6. And Ezekiel chapter one, right there. Do you know Isaiah six? When Isaiah comes in he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Above him were, were angels. And these angels had six wings. With two, they were covering their faces. With two, they were covering their feet. And with two, they were flying. And all around the throne of God were these angels singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And Isaiah falls down falls down, recognizing his impurity and his sinfulness in the midst of the holy grandeur of God seated on the throne. Ezekiel sees something similar. Uh, Moses in the burning bush. Moses on Mount Sinai. You remember Moses on Mount Sinai. God, show me your glory. And, and God says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to Moses, here, here's, here's the deal, Moses. If I just show you, it, it will overwhelm you. It is not good for you because Moses is still a sinner. He cannot be in the fullness of the grandeur and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. The holiness, the purity of all that God is cannot stand in the midst of a sinful human being and not overwhelm that sinner. And so what God says to Moses on Sinai is, I'm going to pass in front of you. You hide in the rock. And as I pass in front of you, you can see the back of my glory. And the back of God's glory is so much that Moses has to veil his face when he walks down the mountain because the radiance of God's glory is all over Moses. So what was Philip thinking? I want something like that. He was thinking Isaiah 6. He was thinking Moses and Sinai. He was, I mean, even even Job. When, When God answers Job out of the storm. Something like that. I want to see something powerful, and mighty, and all the time the very presence of God was looking men in the face. And he missed it. So there's beauty in the longing of what Phillips is experiencing and, and what he's saying. There's also a great purity in it because the, the desire to know God and experience God is, is of the purest of desires that a human being can have. To say, to not just recognize that God is out there and he exists, But to recognize that there is a God out there that that is so holy and righteous and and yet still wants to have a relationship with me, I I want to see him. I want to know him. I read an article on the passing of uh, uh, J.I. Packer. He passed a year ago this week. And um, uh, just a a theologian and author and uh, really stirred up my passion for understanding doctrine at a deeper level and understanding the Puritans and the great um, uh, theological and, and, and devotional traditions of the English and American Puritans. Um, J.I. Packer said, um, when he was asked, What is the best thing in life? He said, You know what, the, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? The knowledge of God. Seeking to know God as He is. Seeking to know the truth of God for who He is as he is, knowing him in a deep way and and living in light of that truth, to not just know that God is real and exists, but to actually know at such an intimate level that you live in light of who God is and what God has demonstrated and, and revealed in his word and what God has shown to you in his great love and faithfulness on the cross, that, that is what brings joy and contentment When you know God so well that you recognize that in the presence of God, you're like Isaiah. You're like Isaiah in that all you can do is just fall to your knees and say, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah falls in front of the throne of God, it's not just his own sin that weighs him down. It's recognizing everybody Everybody in the human race is like me and falls so short against the purity of what I am seeing here today. Knowing God so well that you recognize that in the presence of a holy God, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how obedient you have been, no matter how good you look in comparison to others, no matter how good you look in in the eyes of others, you're still a sinner in, in need of redemption, you're still a sinner on a path towards condemnation without redemption breaking in. That you stand guilty before the throne of God because of the sins, not that Adam and Eve committed, but the sins that you committed. I stand guilty because of the sins that I committed. And so before the throne of God, I would be just like Isaiah. And so would you. But but then Jesus breaks in. And And so there's a great longing here that's beautiful in what Philip is saying. There's a great purity here in, in really wanting to know and grasp who God is. But there's also a lack of faith because he's been giving an incredible revelation of God. You know, Isaiah was a hero to people like Philip, I'm sure. I'm sure Philip grew up reading and studying the the words of Isaiah. And in that moment, uh, Philip was in the presence of a greater revelation of the person and work of God than Isaiah ever saw. And he didn't realize it. He wanted to be like Isaiah and and getting a glimpse of the throne room of God when Philip had a front row seat for the pinnacle of all of human history. And it was going to happen in the next 24 hours. That everything, all of creation was moving in the, from the beginning of time into all eternity. Everything hinges and swings on this one moment that Philip was about to be an eyewitness of. And he had no idea because he wanted to see what he had heard about. It wasn't faith in the revelation of God that had been revealed to him right in front of him. It was, I want to see, I want to hear, I want to feel like what they experienced. And so what God was doing in Philip paled in comparison to what God had done in Ezekiel and Moses and Isaiah. And that's what Philip was longing for. And there's a great challenge in there for us. The great revelation that God had given to him, he was in the midst of missing it because he wanted a different kind of revelation. He wanted a different kind of vision of the presence of God. Now, we're going to jump our, I said we're going to talk about Philip's response, Jesus' response, and our response, but I'm going to talk about us for a minute before I get to Jesus' response. Um, Philip's question totally missed the point, right? Or Philip's request. I mean, it's not really a question. It's just, Lord, show us the Father. He heard Jesus say, no one comes to the Father except through me, and focuses on that. Okay, Jesus is the, is the path to, to enter into the presence of the Father. I want to get to the Father. Jesus, show me how to get to the Father. But he missed, if you see me, you see the Father. I am the revelation of God you need at this moment, at this time. And, and so my question for us of, of application first is, where do our requests and expectations of God miss the point? And let's really be reflective on that. Write that down. Reflect on that this week. Where do your prayers miss the point? Because you say, well, I'm not like Philip. Philip literally was face-to-face with the Son of God. I've never had that opportunity. So I don't know what I would have done when I was in Philip's shoes. But we have a significant amount of revelation from God right in front of us, don't we? We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God. And if you are in Christ, if you have given your life to Christ and received his gift of salvation, you've received the punishment of Jesus on the cross where he paid for your blood, then you have the spirit of God dwelling in you. And so my question is, is it possible for us to be like Philip and just miss what God is doing? Because remember, remember, it was in this same discussion that Jesus looks at a little bit later in the dinner. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, it's better for you that I go away. Why? That's really weird. Wouldn't they want Jesus to stay? What did they want Jesus to to do all that had been predicted about him in the Old Testament, all that he had predicted about himself? They wanted to see this king, this Messiah from from the family of David, the king of Israel, the true king and the son of God. They wanted to see him restore all things, defeat Rome, conquer their greatest enemy, Satan, conquer death. They wanted to see it all. And Jesus is like, no, 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 y'all. You know what's going to be better for you? For me to go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the Spirit to be with you. Have you ever been like Philip where you wondered, you wanted to just take a step back in redemptive history? I, I, think, I think we've all been there. I think we've all been at a point where like Philip, Philip didn't want the revelation of the Son of God in physical flesh. He wanted a revelation of the throne of God in all of his holiness and purity. Uh, sometimes we want to step back because we would love to be sitting at a dinner table with Jesus, the Son of God, right? We'd love to be on that boat with the disciples in Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool to interact with Jesus, the Son of God, in the flesh? Wouldn't that be cool to be a part of that stage of redemptive history to get to see it? But you know what God has ordained for us? To be a part of what Jesus calls a better stage. Jesus says it is better for us to be living in the age of the Spirit than to be living in the presence of the physical Son of God as he walked the earth. Because we're post cross. And post-cross is better than pre-cross. And the Spirit of God is a fuller revelation that indwells all of us than just Jesus being on one city on the planet at a time. The Spirit of God now empowers because the penalty of sin has been paid at the cross. The Spirit of God simultaneously empowers all who have received that gift and had their sin paid for and received the new life of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says it's better. Because you don't have to wonder where I am. Because Jesus did a lot of wandering off, right? You know this from the life of Jesus. He wandered off and the disciples lost him. How do you lose the Son of God? It happened a lot. Because Jesus wandered off by himself to pray. Jesus got on boats. Jesus showed up at the shore. And they didn't know what he was doing. They couldn't figure out where he was going. You can't lose the Spirit of God. He's there. He's with us. And if you're in a boat in the midst of a storm, you don't have to worry if the Spirit of God is sleeping the way the disciples were worried about Jesus sleeping over there. Because the Spirit of God empowers at all times. The Spirit of God is present at all times. He's always listening. He's always working on our behalf. And so what I'm saying is, is that just the way, we can pick on Philip all we want, and we can say he lacked faith, and I do believe he did. But, y'all, so do we. When we want to see that Isaiah 6, y'all, I would love to see that. I would love to see Isaiah 6. I would love to have been in the upper room with Jesus. But I also got to trust that what Jesus says is true. That the revelation of the presence of God in the Spirit of God is better for us at this moment in which we are living today. The Spirit of God inside you is better than Jesus beside you. That's what Jesus is telling us. And you know, it's amazing how the Spirit works, and that's really what I really want us to be reflecting on today, how the Spirit of God empowers and moves conversations forward and, and, and speaks to us, speaks through, through sinful human beings that are just, just dependent upon the Spirit to get anything right. You know, I had a conversation, I had a phone call with an old friend, and in that conversation, the conversation turned towards a lunch from almost 10 years ago from September of 2011. We had this amazing lunch. And I was telling somebody else about this lunch. And then I called my friend and I said, hey man, I just need to tell you, oh, you and I haven't talked about this in 10 years. But do you remember that lunch we had? And you know why I remember exactly when it was. Most of y'all know the story, but I know we've got new people in here. Um, in, in 2011, um, Jess and I, my wife and I, we, we lost two twin boys. August of 2011, born at 23 weeks and lost one at birth and lost one three days later in the NICU. And I was serving this church as the the family pastor at the time and serving the youth and kids ministry. And I had lunch with a friend. And and this is my vantage point. This is my memory of a lunch 10 years ago. I can tell you exactly where we were sitting. I can tell you where he was sitting. I can tell you where I was sitting. I can't tell you anything I said. I can tell you about 80% of what he said because the Spirit of God spoke through him to me. Because in my vantage point, in my memory of the conversation, I came in as a complete train wreck. And I, I, I didn't know how to stand up and minister in the midst of what I had experienced. Because y'all, grief comes in waves. And sometimes you're doing really good. And sometimes you look really good on the outside. And sometimes you're just completely broken. And I walked into that restaurant completely broken. I knew the truth I knew who God was. I knew God's affection for me, God's concern for me. I knew God's ultimate protection for my family. I knew all of those things, but I sure wasn't feeling them that day. And so as I was talking to this friend, I mean, I was thanking him for all that he said. And and I said, man, do you remember that lunch 10 years ago? He's like, yeah, man, like it was yesterday because you were so inspiring. I was like, dude, I was a train wreck. What are you talking about? And, you know, his memory of the whole lunch was so different than mine. Because all I remember was just trying to pick myself up each and every day and trying to remind myself of what I knew to be true, but not fully feeling it at all times. And what he remembers, he doesn't remember anything he said. He remembers what I said, and he remembers being so inspired by the Spirit of God filling me with such incredible faith and courage in the midst of this great trauma. I was like, man, I don't know what you were looking at. That's not how I felt. I was telling Jess the story of this Lunch from 10 years ago, which she knew at the time, and then our phone call three days ago, uh, reliving that lunch. I didn't think he remembered it. I didn't, I didn't think he remembered the details. I knew he remembered the story. I didn't think he remembered the details of that actual lunch. But he said, no, 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 like it was yesterday. It was an inspiring conversation. And Jess looks at me and goes, isn't that just how the Spirit works? I was like, oh, yeah. Boy, it kind of is, Right? Because if we really believe that the Spirit of God indwells both of us, then I believe that the Spirit of God can speak to me and tell me what I need to hear through him. And I believe that the Spirit of God can speak through me to him and exactly say what he needs to hear. And I believe that both of us just need to get out of the way in some of those conversations. And I don't need to hear what I'm saying. I don't need to remember what I'm saying because the Spirit of God is, speaking, is using me to speak through me to him and the Spirit of God is using him to speak to me. And so isn't that just like the Spirit? That neither of us really remember what we said individually but we remember what the Spirit of God was saying through the other. Man, that's the resources of the Spirit of God at work in the minds and in the hearts of a believer. That he's with us. He's using us. And he's using us in ways that we cannot imagine. And some days, years later, we'll, we'll figure out, hey, this the spirit of God did something here and I, I had no idea what he was doing. I was looking for God to work. I was looking for God to work in those days, the hardest season of my life. But I wasn't looking for him to, to work over chips and salsa that day the way that he did. And he just blew my mind. Now let's go to what Jesus' response was. Jesus' response was, number one, very direct. Where have you been, Philip? I mean, look at it. Have I been with you for so long, Philip, and still you don't know me? Where have you been? What have you been listening to? What have you been looking at? You haven't seen the Father? You've been looking at me for three years, Philip. You've seen the Father every day for three years. So he's direct, no doubt. He's calling Philip out. But he's also patient. You know, there's another time when Jesus looked at one of his disciples and made it very clear that that disciple was speaking on behalf of Satan. He didn't do that with Philip here. You know, Peter got way worse treatment when Peter said something dumb than Philip did when he said something. When Peter says something, something incorrect, said something that he should have known better, Jesus looks right at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Philip, he's just go, what have you been doing, man? What have you been looking at? You haven't seen the Father? What have you been looking at for all these three years? Look me in the eye. I'll show you the Father. So yeah, he's he's direct, he's patient, he's also mind-blowing. Because he says this incredible, incredible statement that 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out what he means. Have you ever really sat down and tried to examine all the complexities of the Trinity? Of how we can affirm the, the Shema, the, the great statement of the Old Covenant Hebrew Scriptures, it says, The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind. We can affirm that, and yet we can say, yeah, but there's three persons. The Lord our God is one, but there's also three of them. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and, and when you look at the Son, you see the Father, but then the sun goes away and he sends you the spirit and you're empowered by the spirit. Have you really ever sat down and tried to figure that out? It'll blow your mind. It's why so many believers who love Jesus, who, who seek to learn and grow in the knowledge of Jesus, has spent 2,000 years trying to figure out exactly what Jesus means by some of these statements. In the sabbatical, some of the best reading that I did was really, really old reading. I read from um, Irenaeus, um, who wrote in the second century, only a, a hundred some years after the life of Jesus, and he was trying to write a summary of everything, of all of the key points of the apostles' preaching. It's called on the Apostolic Preaching. It's fabulous. And then I read um, from Athanasius, who was in the fourth century. Athanasius was one of the key figures of what's called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. So we're looking at 300 years after the cross. And one of the key, um, uh, one of the key discussions of the Council of Nicaea. And y'all, listen, 17-year-old history, it matters a ton you should know and you should appreciate what these brothers and sisters were, were struggling with back in those days. And, and when they ca- called together all these church leaders at Nicaea in 325, they wrestled over how can God be one and how can God be three? Does, does, does Jesus and God, do they actually work together at all times? How are, they, how are they linked together? And this concept that I just love was birthed out of it, and not exactly in these words from the Council of Nicaea, but I think this is the, the concept that we really need to see. This, uh, the doctrine of inseparable operations. You can write that down. Athanasius in the 300s, Gregory of Nazianus and the other Cappadocian fathers. Those are the names you need to know for this doctrine. The doctrine of inseparable operations says this. Exactly what Jesus said in, in John 14. I don't say anything that the father's not saying. I don't do anything that the father's not doing. The doctrine of inseparable operation says we do violence to the Trinity if we try to overly separate them. We try to act as if God's doing something that the Son doesn't understand or the Spirit's doing something that Jesus didn't send the Spirit to do or Jesus was off doing something on his own. We cannot, we cannot fathom the depth of the Trinity that way. And so listen, I understand the doctrine of the Trinity is mind-blowing, but I want I just, to just toe-step in to the depth of the beauty for a second here. To say that when we get the gospel right, what we see is the three persons of the Trinity working inseparably in incredible shared will and shared purpose, accomplishing something beautiful for each one of us. To where God, God the holy judge, is not condemning and punishing us, but actually punishing his son who goes willingly. And the Spirit of God is empowering the resurrection of Jesus, the the Messiah. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And and the Spirit of God is raising the Son up to newness in life. And then then Jesus is returning to the Father, is bringing us into the presence of the Father, and sending the presence of the Father to us in the person of the Spirit. And when we see those three working in unison and working together, it... It just blows our mind. We don't don't conceive of the story of the gospel as if God punished his son in a way that the son didn't understand or that the son went unwillingly or anything like that. No, no, no. It's God himself sending himself to save us from himself because the righteous judge has to condemn sinners. Uh, God is in the cross saving us. We are saved by God, through God, from God, and for God, all at the cross of Jesus. For new life in him, for new righteousness in him, because the punishment that we deserve, the Son took on himself. And we would all be guilty if not for this sacrifice. So when Jesus acts on our behalf, it's not separated from the action of God the Father, nor is it separated from the action of of the Spirit, and sometimes we do this to the Trinity. We say, "Well, God is the judge. God is the is the harsh one. God is the just one, and Jesus is the loving and merciful and kind one." Y'all, that's not right either. God is is the judge who is merciful and loving. He's the good good Father who loves his children. Jesus, yeah, Jesus is loving and merciful, and we get these pictures of Jesus, but When we get the pictures of Jesus in the Gospels, we have to recognize Jesus is a complex figure. Uh, Spurgeon, I've told you before, Spurgeon used to love to point out that in all of the different passages we have about who Jesus is, one time we're told about his heart. And who is Jesus in his heart? He is gentle and lowly. So we, we love that gentle and lowly Jesus that we can embrace and come to in times of need, but also Jesus, in, in Revelation 19, it has a, a sword coming out of his mouth and a robe that is dipped in blood, and he's coming to lead armies to war to conquer his enemies. Jesus ain't no pushover. Jesus is gentle and loving and kind and merciful, and Jesus is also just, and Jesus condemns those who reject him, and Jesus conquers his enemies. And the Spirit is all of those things too. So then what is our response? We we should follow Philip into the longing. But we should also be patient where Philip was not. Follow, Follow the longing to know God, to experience God, to embrace God at a deeper level, but also recognize that God is doing so much more than we can see. And when we don't get the answers to our prayers that we're longing for, We still trust that he's still seated on the same throne he was seated on in Isaiah 6. We don't have to see it to know that he's there. The Spirit of God empowers us with a peace that surpasses all understanding to to maintain faith in the midst of whatever storm comes. And we remain faithful when the cares and concerns of this life weigh us down, and they will. Last week we said, we don't need the world's peace that just says everybody get along and feel better about everything. We need an uncommon peace. We need peace with God that lasts for eternity and so that we can recognize the hope of eternity to endure in the midst of the challenges of this life. That's the only anchor for the soul. And y'all, we also live, so, so, so that, here it is, longing, patient, faithful, mind blown. That's us. We live patient faithful mind blown longing lives because never let these beauty these beautiful depths of the trinity and the gospel become old and stale to you the gospel is revolutionary good news for those who deserve to just be left with the bad news the bad news is you're a sinner condemned to hell without the sacrifice of jesus but we need that good news to say that's not the end of the story That Jesus had actually has died and risen again for us. That's the Jesus we follow. I'm going to show you one more picture and and we'll wrap it up this way. This is what Jericho loved. This is the rock that Jericho loved. We went here a a couple of times. We went as a family once and, and I took Jericho back and he loved it. Why? Because it was a rock that he could see, he could touch, he could feel, he could climb on it. Y'all, that ain't the Grand Canyon. That's Honeybee Canyon. Honeybee Canyon is not the Grand Canyon. It's not nearly the size of the Grand Canyon. It's not nearly the depth of the Grand Canyon. But it was enough for him to embrace, for him to engage, for him to experience great joy. So I had to take Jericho back to Honeybee Canyon, which was way cooler than the Grand Canyon for Jericho. What what does that even mean? Why am I I telling you that? Number one, to show you that we really did have fun with our son and he wasn't complaining the whole time. But but number two, to say that sometimes we're not experiencing the depths of the grandeur and the beauty of all that God has for us because we're just not ready. I wasn't going to take a seven-year-old down the Bright Angel Trail into the Grand Canyon and come back up. He, He just wasn't ready for it. But he saw the beauty of God's creation in this little canyon called the Honeybee Canyon. And he loved it, and it's a great memory for him. And you know, you may be looking for the Grand Canyon. You may be looking to understand everything and and understand all of the depths. But when when God's got something in front of you that doesn't blow your mind, don't, don't neglect the beauty of the moment that you're in right there. Sometimes we're so busy looking for God to do something else that we miss the beauty of what he's already done. Here's a promise. God's not going to do more for you than what he's already done. What I mean by that is whatever next blessing comes, it's not going to exceed the blessing that's already come whatever next gift that comes, and there will be next gifts, there will be next blessings, there will be next revelations of God that he'll, he'll give you his love and his peace and his mercies that are new every morning. But whatever that is, whatever that next experience of God, it's not gonna beat the cross. Whatever he does from you, for you from this point on doesn't exceed the new life he's granted at the cross. So rest in that beauty. Rest in, in the anchor that you who were a sinner have been saved by the blood of Jesus, and he is speaking to you. He is speaking to you through his word every day, empowering you with his spirit every day. And if you're not experiencing it, then, then it's time to get right with him. So as, as the band closes us in, in one more song, I'm going to ask you, wherever you are right now, come forward If you're not experiencing that life and life to the fullness that the Spirit of God offers to the believer. And maybe it's as simple as we need to get right with God. We need to make sure we get the gospel right. And and you need to to go to your knees, like Isaiah, and receive redemption through the atonement of sin. Or maybe it's just there's something in the way, something that's hurting, something that's broken. and, And we can deal with that today, too. But as we worship today, whether you come forward, whether you get down on your knees where you are, whether you stand at your place, worship the risen Savior who's already revealed such incredible beauty to us in the gift of new life we've received in Christ.
1: For me and my house, we're gonna serve you. For me and my house, you'll get the praise for me and my house. We're gonna Ah, um.
0: Standing, you know, in those five weeks away, one of the things I miss most was this moment right here um, where Jason and his team just lead us in celebration after we've heard the word. And I have the honor of standing in your presence and delivering this blessing to you from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. Amen. Now go in peace.